Hey everyone, it's Holly Randall from Holly Randall Unfiltered, and I am quite excited about this next podcast. This is somebody who is actually not in the adult industry in any way, so don't try to go looking up his triple X rated videos because sadly for all of us, you're not going to find him. He is into word porn more than he is into the kind of porn I shoot, or at least that's what he tells me. But he's an amazing poet, and he's a super interesting guy. He's very funny, and he's one of my favorite people. So without further ado, here is my good friend, Derek Brown. everybody, and I am absolutely thrilled to be welcoming my new guest today. Um, I'm actually a little bit nervous. Um, this is a fantastic poet and an old friend, uh, Derek Brown. Hey, hello. Hi, Derek. Hi. So I warned Derek before we started that this is only the sixth podcast I've ever recorded, so I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. So not to expect a professional show in any way whatsoever. I'm glad it's not the first. So far, so good. <laughs> well, the first one I did with my parents, so I figured that, you know, they could handle like all of my my mishaps. So when I, I walked have... when I walked in, I was like, why the fuck is there nice lighting? For a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's because everybody needs to see how handsome you are. Oh, I realize it's being recorded. And um, so I'm just going to start off uh, this podcast with um, a story about, you know, how Derek and I met. And it's probably going to make him like super uncomfortable. Um, so I met Derek like over 10 years ago. And I remember, I'll, I'll never forget it. So I was on a Match.com date with an absolute idiot. He was just, his name was Nick. And um, I remember when we first went to get drinks before we went to your show, um, I remember he ordered a Shirley Temple. And I remember thinking, this is just not going to go well tonight. Because he's like, I don't want to lose control. Yeah. Well, I wasn't <laughs> drinking, so I had like a cappuccino, but like the fact, I don't know what it was, like the fact that this dude ordered a Shirley Temple like bothered me. And then he proceeded to try to feed me the cherry from the Shirley Temple. I had just met this guy like 15 minutes ago. And he's like, hey, do you like, do you want the cherry? And I'm like, sure. You know, thinking I'm going to grab it out of the glass and I'm going to eat it. He's like, no, here, let me feed it to you. And I'm like, okay, this is awkward, but all right. Not only does he go to feed it to me, but he he teases me with it. So he's like, oh, 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 here you go. Oh, 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 almost. And I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me? Give me that goddamn cherry. I'm going to shove that thing in your eye. So then he's like, we're going to go to a poetry reading. And I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. And now you're getting, super turned on. <laughs> this is getting worse by the minute. So I'm just like, oh, my God. this, And it's kind of coming apparent to me that this guy's done, like, a lot of these online dates. And he's got, like, a system down. You know what I mean? He probably does the same thing with every girl. You know, like, what's going to impress a girl? I'm going to take her to this cool little chic um, bar. And then I'm going to take her to a poetry reading. And she's just going to think I'm so sensitive. And, you know, she's going to suck my dick by the end of the night. So Tie the stem into a knot. Yeah. And it's good night. Exactly. So we go to this poetry reading and I'm just like thinking this is so lame. And I was a literature major and I like poetry, but I'm just like, I don't know. I'd never been to one before. And, 
you know, I had these expectations, I guess, and a couple people went up and it was just kind of like, mm, whatever. And then you went up and you started reading. And I just remember like, honestly, it was just like the universe fell away. I was so captivated and I was so impressed and I, I was just floored. And, you know, I mean, you're, you're funny, you're poignant, you're sexy, you're intelligent. I mean, it's just like all these things wrapped up into one. And this guy just kind of like faded away and he's trying to get my attention next to me. You know, he's trying to like touch me, like rub my shoulder, like touch my hair. I'm like, get the fuck away from me. (laughs) And all I could see was you. Got more cherries. I know, exactly. (laughs) And I was just like, I was like, get get out of here. And then I went over to you afterwards and I bought one of your books and you signed it for me. And, you know, I wish I had brought it because I remember you wrote something really strange in there. Something like, I hope this brings you joy and does not induce vomiting or something like that. It was something very, very bizarre. But I just, um, I just have to say, I, I did develop like a massive crush on you that night. Which really? Continue. You know, so stop, don't act like you well, don't no, know. Well, no, know what I remember about that night was I met you and you were alone. I didn't see some uh, weirdo... That's because a um, weirdo dude with you. Because I totally ditched him. Oh, gotcha. he like hung in the back, and I'm like, I'm gonna go buy a book. See you later. And I just like made a beeline for your book table, and then afterwards he tried to invite me over to watch horror movies and bake brownies, and I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and there, um, and then we just kind of, you know, I just kind of followed you on social media, and we chatted here and there over the years, every once in a while, but didn't really see you again until. Almost like 10 years later when I had, I wanted to get a book for my girlfriend, Danny Daniels. Oh, yeah. For Christmas. And I hit you up and I was like, hey, you know, I know you're living in Texas, but, you know, my girlfriend loves poetry and would you sign a book for me so I can give it to her? And you were like, I moved back to LA. I'm having a show. Why don't you come by? And I was like, oh my gosh. And then we got to reconnect. So. And you sent me a picture of Danny Daniels holding up the book. I did. And doing a blowjob. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like your poetry. I like to suck dicks. <laughs> well, I feel like it kind of just goes hand in hand, you know? Literally, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, and for people who are kind of maybe wishy-washy about poetry, I would highly recommend that you go and see one of Derek's shows just because – it's not just the poetry itself, which is great, but it's the way that you read it, which is really brings brings it home and I think really brings your writing to life. And I just think you're super talented and I'm just excited to have you here. Thanks. It's it's a uphill battle trying to get people to – when you say – I'm sure when that dude said to you like, um, we're going to check out a poet show, yeah. you're like, oh my God, you fucking hippie, weirdo, Birkenstock psycho. <laughs> That's exactly um, what I thought. <laughs> and um, to convince them that – you know, there's a lot of different styles out there and just someone has to – you need a little more curation to find your style. You can go to a comedy show and probably see three or four comics out of 12 that you like. Uh, poetry, it might be one. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a little harder because um, poets seem to 
uh, get into a groove of what's happening in that at that time in the zeitgeist of how people are performing and it might be sing-songy at the time uh, it might be that beat thing. It might be really fast, sort of a spitting knowledge and, and amethyst rocks spitting through time. And you're like, I don't know what's going on. It sounds good. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like someone famous that they're ripping off. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, so um, they, some people will start to feel like, I know what a poetry show is like. I've been to one. It's not my jam. So then you have to go like, please come to this one. It's going to be fun. There'll be a dance party afterwards, blah, blah, blah. So I like... I get bored pretty easy, so I try and pull people into my shows that don't like poetry shows. And that's the biggest comment if someone says, I hate it. I hate the over-sentimentality. I hate um, the self-awareness and the preciousness of that art form. And it's so, like, safe-spacey where usually it's very, like, safe-space where, like, just applaud them because they had the guts to share something they wrote down. But movies ain't like that. And getting signed to a label ain't like that. you got to be really good and get criticized and so i like that world i like it to i like people who um have edited their stuff and try to make it good and figured out what's good for an audience and what's good to keep in the book so yeah i'm glad that you were one of the people like yeah i hate this shit and then you're like oh not some people ain't that bad yeah no i think i mean i think you're fantastic so um, I, I also, you know, I wanted to bring you on, not just because I think you're talented, but I just think you have a really interesting life story and I love how you grew up one way and then you completely changed your views <laughs> and now you have a completely different, um, view of the world. And I think that you should tell us all about that in your own words. Sure. Well, uh, probably like most people, I, uh, Wanted to please my parents, and so I went to their church and uh, did that, did the youth group scene, became a magician. I was Derek the Dynamic, and I had a um, tour partner called Mr. Fire the Mystifier. Um, and so wait, is this – because I know that you like – you didn't you grow up here, but then you moved to Texas and – Moved to well, I joined the army. Moved to North Carolina. Okay. My my dad lived uh, when I was young. He moved back to Texas um, when they split, and um, so and then I had living in Texas later. But um, so I wanted to be a, when I was a teenager a Christian magician that eventually went to Las Vegas and cleaned up the strip and used magic, uh, the metaphors of it, to uh, get people on board with Jesus Christ. So I learned all these dove tricks, and I talk about purity when I pulled out the doves, <laughs> and then I'd vanish them, and your purity be gone. Um, so you wanted to b- use magic to bring the word of God, the word of Jesus, yes. to Las Vegas. The devil's full of illusions, and um, <laughs> and I was like, no, the Lord's also full of illusions. Check this out. <laughs> uh, oh wait, that doesn't sound right. Um, <laughs> So, uh, but something happened when we were getting ready to go to war uh, against Iraq in 90, uh, where I had this sense of patriotism, where I was like, I, if this is going to be like World War II and we want to defend someone that's more uh, weaker, like the Kuwaitis, I want to help defend our nation. I didn't research it very much. Yeah, you were just like, America, fuck yeah. I was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I actually went to a protest against peace protesters. <laughs> Where I held up signs saying, um, I didn't even know America first and all that. Wait, I didn't even know those existed. Yeah. Um, it was basically, uh, you know, like if someone has an anti Trump rally, there'll be Trump supporters that show up to be like, we, we want someone who doesn't know stuff. Um, (laughs) 
And um, so I was very conservative, mm-hmm. went in the army, ready to fight and um, die for something I didn't research that much. And then I needed money for college too. I went in and then I really started to love the people of the army. I started to love paratroopers. I kind of fell in love with America, getting to know people from all these other states and hearing their stories. I kind of dropped religion. I was like, oh, we sit in a foxhole, talk for hours and hours and hours. It shapes everything when you get to get outside your community bubble, when you get Everyone from like Panama, Bronx, uh, Indiana, you start to love the the poor working class of America more than you ever did and, and their stories and you feel like united with them and supportive of soldiers and you're, and you're supportive of your fellow soldier more than the cause that was going on. So I left the army in 93, but in the army I found poetry. I was writing in a foxhole, uh, rewriting psalms. Uh, in the Bible so that I could understand them. Right. And um, and then I went to community college in Cypress, California, and someone said, hey, in Long Beach, they're doing this thing called an open mic and uh, at a coffee shop. And I was like, a coffee shop? You get coffee at McDonald's or Denny's. You don't, there's not a place just for coffee. They're like, yeah, they have them now. And it's just coffee and you can <laughs> play your guitar or read a poem. I was like, well, I wrote some things down. And it was really bad and they were very (laughs) supportive. And I was like this stiff dude there and all of these like drug addicts and weirdos and purple hair people were like, great, come hang out with us after. And I was like, but I'm not like you. And they're like, that's all right. And I fell in love with that community of poets back then because it was punk back then, you know. Mm -hmm. People would get on stage and get naked and scream and then you're like, all right, well, that was weird, but we're going to get pancakes after. Yeah. or people would say very offensive things, and you're like, yeah, but he's a nice guy. Uh, now, if you did anything like that, you would be banned from ever showing up at a venue again. Mm-hmm. It was at in the early 90s, it was like pro, like push buttons because we've been oppressed and our voice is hidden for a long time. And now it's like if you say anything that is offensive or challenging, you're excommunicated from the community. So it's a different mood now. Um Let's see. What happened after that? You say when people say something that's offensive or challenging, I mean, what do you mean by challenging? I mean, do you mean, is that is that a bad thing? Because I can see, I can understand like offensive, you know, people growing up and they're spouting racism or something like that. But when you say challenging, do you mean different political views? Do you mean like- Right. Like if someone came up with a pro-gun uh, poem. Okay. Um, the audience is not into it. Okay. Um, or if someone talks about this Puerto Rican guy that they were friends with and they're not Puerto Rican, it sounds like, fuck you, that's not your story to tell. And you're like, yeah, but I met this guy. This is my – and they'd be like, no, 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 no. You, you, you're already um, misinterpreting the culture by not being part of it. Mm-hmm. There is um, a hyper-awareness uh, that isn't that interesting to me. I, I'm not for like people um, – saying super offensive stuff, but no one really wants to hear um, erotic stuff that often uh, or, or funny stuff. And they want to hear about um, struggle and trauma and tragedy. And so, and then you applaud for it and it feels like a formula right now and it's going to change within a couple of years. Something's going to, new will come around, but right now it's a, it's a little boring. Do you think that people... Because that's what people expect of poetry. 
I think that it's it's exciting a little bit if you've never been to a show and and someone comes up there and talks about um, how awful their parents were to them or something like that and then says how they overcame it and you're like yeah all right you right. you pulled it off but it's more interesting to me when you don't overcome something and right. you are like I am weak yeah. um, and those themes aren't often explored. And I think it's because a lot of young people get into poetry and that those who are um, filling up the slams, the poetry slams, there's kind of a young person scene right now. And when you're getting into poetry, uh, complexity isn't often like your goal mm-hmm. um, or the nuances of like being a failure. It's more like I want to show people that I'm a fighter and I, I can hang in there. And so everyone's doing that. And it's it's not that. It's not that fun to go to a lot of poetry shows, um, but there's some cool stuff happening, especially in L.A. Um, like there's a lot of neat, diverse, um, cool shows happening in art galleries and bars. And this scene seems to be thriving when certain cities uh, seem to be dwindling, especially everyone I know, even in Austin, uh, is moving here um, to have this like art renaissance Um mm-hmm. Everyone I knew like six years ago was moving away from L.A. because of money right. uh, and the cost of living. But then it turns out Portland, Austin, Nashville is just as expensive. Yeah. So people are like, well, why don't I just go back yeah, to an expensive place with better weather and um, more access to like venues and other talented artists? <laughs> and you should now just throw it down. <laughs> Bring what else? I literally just pulled the stand off of the table. I told you I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> breaking. I'm sorry, Ernie. I'm breaking everything. Okay. <laughs> um, Let's just rock it out like this. <laughs> Come on, guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can I, like, slam the mic down on the floor at the end afterwards? This is going to be my final send-off. Jimi Hendrix style. <laughs> So you find that there's a different, like, is our poetry scene significantly different in each city? And and, and you've toured Europe as well. Mm-hmm. And you've, like, what's it like over there? Actually, you just came back from, well, talk about the tour you just came back from. Well, uh, sometimes it's more fun to go out with a band or a comedian. I tour with, like, Eugene Merman a lot of mm-hmm. Bob's Burgers and Flight of the Concords. Those shows are the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll tour with a band like Cold War Kids or the Afghan Wigs guys. Or um, I just did Rival Sons. Mm-hmm. It's kind of classic rock um, power band. And uh, great dudes. And they wanted their audience to not just sit through three bands that kind of sounded like them right. and no one really wanted to hear. Right. <laughs> they're all waiting for the thing. So like, why don't we give them what we like? And they're like, we want to do a DJ that plays 50s music, 50s vinyl, Howie Pyro, which was the basis from Danzig. Now he's a 50s DJ. Oh, wow. Um, and he uh, used to be in D-Generation. He knows all this punk stuff, but he loves playing like 50s, like fun music. Mm-hmm. And um, then I do poetry, and then the band comes on, and it's like a break for your ears, where it's not all da 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 And um, some crowds were, like, bummed. Like, I don't want to listen to words with no guitar. <laughs> and especially in Europe, where they're like, we don't even understand their lyrics. We just like these cool riffs. Right. And the sunglasses. Um, so uh, when I went there, I was like, hey, guys, <laughs> here's some ideas. <laughs> and so sometimes it didn't work, but the nights it worked was beautiful. Like in Milan, 
uh, I have this poem about when I was a gondolier in Long Beach, rowing people through in the boats through the canals. And I brought out this older lady alone, and she's Italian, and I was singing her Arrivederci Roma, and she was like, looked like this afterwards. I was like, oh, I really got to her heart. <laughs> Is everything all right? And she's like, you're singing the wrong lyrics. <laughs> you need to sing Con Sentimento. And I was like, oh, what's that? And she's like, with feeling. So I decided to learn all the lyrics to Santa Lucia. I finished the poem in Milan, and then I start to sing Santa Lucia in Italian, and everyone knew it. And started to sing along with me and like 1,500 people singing at the top of their lungs with me. It was so, so beautiful. And everyone's like, Italy's going to suck. They don't know English. It's going to be bad. It was wonderful. So certain shows I thought were going to be awful were great. Certain shows that I thought would be great, like in Copenhagen, were really bad. Really? Where they were like whistling me off the stage. Or in Frankfurt, I thought it would be good. And they threw pint glasses at me. And um, what do you do? Okay, so what do you do in that case? Do you, do you leave or you just kind of like truck on through? You just keep going and you just dodge the glasses and um, the hecklers. Well, it was this tour was a great lesson for me because the lead singer Jay Buchanan would watch my set, and when people started to boo me in say Frankfurt, um, it uh, the poems I could tell were going over well, but there were a couple people who were like, ugh. Yeah. Feelings. <laughs> and um, we drink those away here. <laughs> yes. We've been, we went through the feeling phase. We, <laughs> this is a problem. Um, so um, he came out when the first glass uh, came by my head. And I was, and I was like, um, uh, did that slip out of your hand, sir? <laughs> and I was like, he I, was so riveted by your poetry <laughs> that he was just holding it so tightly and it just flew out. I actually didn't know what to say or do if I needed to drill him or whatever, because he was also booing. Mm-hmm. And there was other people booing too, but it was only like 10 people in a room of like 1,200 people. Right. So you kind of start to think those 10 people are everybody. Right. <clears throat> Social media. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, but Jay came out and stood on the drum riser and everyone started to clap for him. And he was kind of sitting there being like, we may not play if you guys are going to be assholes. And so whew, got really quiet and he just stayed out there. And I was like, should I leave? I'm kind of ruining the momentum of the show. And he's like, no, do one more. And he just stayed out there while I did. It was really cool. It like, you know, it's nice when... Uh, you're waiting for your band and finally they come out. He like ruined that momentum by coming out there and sitting there. And it was a really cool move. Yeah. It's like your bodyguard. Yeah. Like, yeah, my angel. (laughs) Um, I remember in in Munich, um, they weren't having it. And I always have good shows in Munich usually, but they're poetry shows. Mm -hmm. And, um, but they were so polite. Um, One of this guy in a motorhead shirt yells out to me while I'm doing the poem. He goes, stop. Talking, <laughs> and it wasn't you suck. Uh, like, Please, would you exit the stage? It'd be much appreciated. We need the distorted guitars. <laughs> um, oh god, that was so fun. That made me laugh so hard. But I kind of thought, like, I guess my job is to leave the stage when they want me to, because the audience is like customers, king, right? Right. And he and the band was like, no, no, just learn to hang in there when it goes off the rails. And then I started to have fun when mm-hmm. when the audience got mad, and I would just start to drill them back until I would shut them up because I have the microphone, and that was yeah. a great lesson. It's almost like a comedian being heckled. 
And then kind of responding back. Yeah, but I don't think most comedians get 10 hecklers in a room of like, mm. I mean, I've, I've rarely ever seen it. Um, Hannibal Burris, I think, once had a couple, a drunk late night show at the Edinburgh Fest. But I've rarely seen like a bunch of people being like, even before you start, we're not into this. <laughs> <laughs> we're not even going to give you a chance. You don't have the guitar thing we like. <laughs> But in the U.S., most people are like, cool, this is different. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about – so you also have a publishing company that you yeah. run, right? So you sign and represent other poets. Is that – Yeah, we've been around 13 years, and we have a mandate in our contract that they have to tour, the like the way I started out, to mm-hmm. build a fan base. And um, so that's – scares off a lot of writers who like to just be in the woodshed and create. But there's a certain breed of writer who writes really well on the page and doesn't sound like a weirdo when they read out loud. Yeah. So we hunt them down and we have a submission contest. And um, This is Right Bloody Publishing. Yeah, correct? rightbloody.com. Yeah. And, uh, and we put out like six to eight books a year. Right. I mean, I feel poetry, I think, is, I don't know. For, there's something about poetry that I feel is so much better read out loud as opposed to prose, because there's a certain like cadence to it and, you know, the rhythm of it. And, um, and I, and and I just find it so much more enjoyable when I hear somebody else reading it as opposed to, to me reading it myself. Short story writers can pull it off, but usually novelists, if you do a show with them, they will, um, usually have to choose a chapter and usually one of their funny chapters, which is often not the beginning chapter. So you kind of get a setup from them, you get the chapter, and then they try and say, well, and then, like, the family perishes uh, on the Oregon Trail. And you're like, uh, I don't know, I don't get a feeling. But poetry has blasts of imagery, and I always say um, a novel is a slow choke and poetry is a bullet. It gets you quick. You can get a feeling within two minutes, and uh, I, I think I fell in love with that a long time ago. Yeah. The speed of it. Right. Like instant gratification. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you want to read us some of your songs? Yes. Now, what were before I do? What were the what were you had your parents on as guests? Mm-hmm. Um, and then who else did you have? I've had Lisa Ann. You're actually the first person not in the adults community that I get, I've had on. That's that's a question I was wondering because I was like, would your fans like? Um, look at this and be like, oh, um, this dude doesn't pound anybody. Uh, why are we How watching this? <laughs> <laughs> he never pounds anyone. <laughs> Not on camera. Off camera, on camera. <laughs> this poor guy. Are you there to help him? <laughs> um, uh, do you think it would be weird for your fans listening on this? Or do you think they're like, Open, easy going. What do, what do you think the take will be? I feel like the musician at the show who's like, I don't give a fuck. You're <laughs> going to read, but nobody's going to heckle you. Yeah, maybe there'll be 10. It's my show <laughs> and I'm going to have on whoever the fuck I want. And I want to have you on and I want you to read something. Well, thank you for sitting on the drum riser as the <laughs> digital pint glasses fly this way. <laughs> Uh, This is a poem called More That I Often Do into a poem called My Bridge to Luxuria. We kissed so hard I could see how she was going to die. We screwed so lost and wild the rabbits outside felt their first ever recorded dose of Catholic Easter shame. 
We kissed, hollered, and moaned such a song. The parrots and songbirds quit the singing biz and turned to learning the most difficult forms of masturbating with only feathers. She said, let's go home and get gross. She is a mansion dropped in a swamp. We sweat everywhere and slide off of everything solid. Her long hair, black waterfalls freezing above two clear pools. I run my fingers over her teeth, looking for metal, searching for her losses. I thrust myself too hard through her stomach, past her spine, past the mattress, down onto the hardwood floor. What am I doing down there? What are all of these other men doing down here? Hey. Hey. Oh. I get back into the sack, bite into her collarbone. A snap releases marrow, judgy parrots in daylight. We fuck like August. She screams the American scream. More. More. And a bird says, more. More. <laughs> and this is called my bridge to luxuria. Two soft pear slices pressed together. You arch. A bridge to luxuria. Plumes of exhilarated sass streak over the sheets. No one wants to admit that your kiss is thick as pussy curry, but it officially is. What is pussy curry? Two great things brought together. <laughs> Just like a Reese's. Comfort a rapture. You exhaust me like grammar. Obscenity exciter. I'm a vigilante with a dumb pie-frosting gun, balsamic seduction, snake coil, rattle-tongue symphony. You song all over me in a unison torque and lava wash. Scream the roof off. Pleasure bellow, hollow yellow, all the sweet vowels you holler. Lord, I can spell again. Nipples reaching like smart kids. Your thighs muff-muff the world around me. Come all over my skull like a tight migraine. When I kiss into the apples of you, you feel the pleasure of God leaving the garden for good. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. <sighs> See, like, okay, for me, that is so much more erotic than the stuff that I shoot. Yeah. Oh, I think we should do a combo of them. Or like, maybe I'm just standing over people. Oh my God, that would be amazing. Reading. These things and seeing if it sparks something. Just so, like, we're just shooting two people having sex and then you're, like, kind of reading poetry over it. Yeah. I think that that's a good way to, for guys to, like, get their chicks to watch porn with them. Yeah. The, uh, this, like, maybe there could be a split screen where, like, I'm standing there for the ladies <laughs> and then the guy eating the butt is in the other frame, frame <laughs> doing the butt stuff. Oh, my God. I, I <laughs> just see, an idea. <laughs> I think we're I think we're onto something. Ooh. I do. Yeah. I do. I mean, yeah, to me that was just oh my god, that was so beautiful. I love exhausting like grammar. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> grammar is kind of exhausting, exhausting, especially since, you know, I feel the need to go around and correct everybody's grammar mm -hmm. these days because still nobody knows the difference between your and you are. There, there, there. Yeah. That was I, I mean, that was beautiful. I I just there's something about your voice, too, which I just feel is very soothing. You know, like I'm very into voices and, and how somebody sounds. And your voice just sounds like something that could like, you know, like put me to bed every night. You know, like you could like like it reminds me kind of of my father, you know, like reading me a story when I was a kid. Like very kind of similar, like soothing. And I think that that's that's also what makes your reading so great as well is just the way that you sound. Thanks. 
I have bored many with this voice. <laughs> I will let you know across the globe. <laughs> you put them to sleep. <laughs> yes. What's up, Frankfurt? Hello. <laughs> Maybe that's what they're bummed about. They're like, it's too soothing. Get bring us back, Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> oh my god, that guy is such a grating voice. Yeah. So tell me about um, some of your other projects that you're working on. I wrote a musical. Uh, about getting struck by lightning uh, with this woman named Amanda Rafkin. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the true story of a guy named Roy Sullivan that was struck seven times over 20 years because he was a forest ranger and didn't want to leave the forest. Okay. And uh, it takes quite a turn. Uh, his real life took quite a turn too, but our story uh, involves him a little bit. And then there's a guy who's about to break his record. And that's called 300 Bones. Um, I just turned in a book about World War II to a place called The Foundry. One of our authors uh, wrote a book called Hot Teen Slut, and uh, we just sold the film rights for that. Oh, wow. And uh, it's about when she was a virgin and she couldn't get a job writing in New York City and about.com or one of these websites had the porn section open up. Mm -hmm. So she reviewed porn for a living and she had never had sex. So her take on it as a virgin poet was hilarious and... Um, and so she writes these little poems, vignettes about how, what the day was like at work that day. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Did she eventually lose her virginity? Years, years later. Yeah. At like what, wait, at like what age? Because, I mean, if you're, you're writing for a publication. I think she was 25. Who loses their virginity at 25? Sweeties. Real <laughs> sweeties. <laughs> I was 19. I hung, really? I hung in there, yeah. Oh my god, I was I was sixteen. I feel like it wasn't a lot of my. I was the last of like all my friends to lose my virginity. Yeah, I uh, I kissed one boob in high school, but I didn't have any girlfriends or anything. I was really dorky. Really, I was like the guy in the Hawaiian shirts with the tie. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, all I need is magic. I don't need affection. <laughs> magic and Jesus. <laughs> yes, jammed <laughs> together. What was your uh, what was your first experience like? Am I allowed to ask? Yeah, sure. It was a trip. It was um, I was in the army. We were asked to go to Ohio to go to this house party, and uh, someone was uh, someone's parents were selling their house. So it was gutted of a lot of stuff. Mm. It had like a mattress here and there and a shitty couch, but no like TVs or anything. Everything was removed for the showing or whatever. And the kids. Uh, so it was like, hey, great place to throw a party. Let's go into the home we're trying to sell. Well, like a hundred people showed up, and uh, I ended up doing magic at this party. And this girl was like, "Will you show me some magic privately?" And I was like, "Yep." And uh, <laughs> we started to make out, and then she took my hand and we went upstairs onto this room with no door, and it just had a mattress. And we started to get on. It was pretty good. Except uh, that my uh, buddies came in and they're like, Derek, we're out of beer. Uh, we need your car keys. Are, is that your ass? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, get, uh, get out of here. And I threw them the keys. They took off in my car and did not come back. So I was stuck stranded in Ohio. This was before the age of cell phones. <laughs> uh, stuck in Ohio. Uh, and the party winds down. The cops come break it up. And he's like, you got to go, man. I was like. I don't, I don't have anywhere to go. They took my car. I don't know anyone here. So I slept in this dude's grandpa's basement and woke up the morning. He's like, I'll drive you around 
in the morning for like an hour and then you got to like take a train or something. I was like, I don't have anything. I don't have my wallet. I don't have anything. What a weird feeling. And we drove around. I saw my car parked in front of a house and I went in. It was the dude's mom's house, fellow soldier named Charlie. And I walked in. He was sleeping and I kicked him in the ribs as hard as I could, like 10 times while he's sleeping. And he's like, what are you doing? I was like, you never leave a fellow soldier behind. <laughs> he's like, we were drunk, man. We were you were drunk. losing your virginity. Yeah. What'd you want? He's like, you were getting laid. We thought you'd go home with her. I was like, and then do what? Go where? <laughs> so it, it was So it was a cool. really magical, personal um, experience. I never saw her again. Uh, found out later she was a mom. Oh. That was interesting. She's a young before mom. Before she met you, right? No, no. She was <laughs> she was a uh pre mom before a mom before me. Yeah. Um and Don't then have like a secret love child out there. No. No. Can you imagine losing your virginity at like a party and then And then you and, and then get, you have a kid. Yeah. I yeah. can imagine it. That would be fun. <laughs> no, not for me. No. I'm not into the kid game. Yeah. I think marriage would be fun. It's all right. Yeah. I've been there. No, 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 I'm divorced. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Been there, done that. It was, it was all right. You know, it's funny. My, um, I remember my boss when I worked at Sammy's camera told me, he was like, everyone needs a starter marriage, you know, like you get married once and then like, and I, you know, my parents, like, you know, where I come from, it's like, you don't get divorced. You know, my parents have been together since they were in their early twenties and, you know, like there's like no divorce in my family except for my one uncle. Um, it's always the uncle. And so, you know, I, I was like, that's ridiculous. I'll never, you know, if I get married, I'll never get divorced. It'll never happen to me. And it totally happened to me. And honestly, like now I'm, I'm really glad that it did because I don't have like that overwhelming desire to get married because I've Mm. done it. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like been there, done that. And especially for women, because I think, you know, we're sold this idea from such a young age, you know, that our purpose in life is to grow up and find a man and get married and have kids and, you know, this white wedding and a dress and like all this shit. And just I, and it's funny because I grew up thinking that that was what I wanted. I think only because I was told that's what I wanted. And then when I got married, which by the way, we like eloped and got married at the Ventura County Courthouse for $140. And oh. I had like one friend there to witness it. There was, it was nothing. It was not like a real wedding. Oh. Um, I found that I, that's not really anything that I care about. Like I don't mm. care about that shit. And actually now the idea of, of getting married and, and having a big wedding and planning it and spending all of this money and getting a dress and Right, you know, figuring out who to invite and the invitations and the food, like that just sounds like the biggest fucking headache in the world. Really? It doesn't seem like kind of fun to have a super party with all your friends and um get to do a little bit of glamour and all that stuff. <sighs> not for you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I'm not saying that I won't get married again. I mean my boyfriend's actually moving in next month, so you know, I mean I am in and actually our, our one year anniversary is tomorrow. Kind of weird, yeah. That's great. And he's amazing and I love him. But, um, you know, and he's been married too. So we've kind of both been through it. So we're both kind of like, meh. Oh, I hate the phrase starter marriage, though. That sounds like, I, ugh. I know, right? But, I mean, it, it just, I think it was kind of like a good thing for me. Because it, it, it just, 
it shattered that whole that I think the expectation, you know, especially for a woman, you know, and I'll and I'm almost 40. I'll be 40 in like a year and a half. And, you know, for a woman to be unmarried and have no kids at my age, it's, you know, like tragedy. Mm. Um, and it's just kind of not that big of a fucking deal. It's not. And it's this construct, you know, that society has created and and it's just I just don't think it's necessarily necessary. It's good for taxes. Can I ask you some lady power stuff? Speaking of that, like sure. you don't have to do, you don't have to go on the same route as that you're told to. Um, if I was to tell um, poets that, uh, hey, I'm going on this podcast. This woman is famous for directing porn and erotic shoots. Um, they, they, some uh, poets might be like. Oh well, that is uh, an art form that's cruel to women, and without them knowing it or doing it or anything right. like that, what would I say back to them? Well, I think that okay. First of all, that kind of makes me crazy. That automatic assumption, because then you're automatically placing the woman in the role as the victim, right? Mm-hmm. And you're assuming that the woman came into this career with um, against you know without a choice. Um, out of some kind of necessity to support her loser boyfriend or because she has low Mm self-esteem or because she was abused or something like that. And, you know, I think that we're so afraid of of female sexuality and and we're so afraid, especially here in America, um, of the idea of a woman being sexually powerful and owning her sexuality and being an exhibitionist, you know, because you don't see people out there crusading for, you know, these poor men who are victims of, of being in porn and being, you know, um, degraded in porn. And there is, you know, there are fetishes and there are videos out there where women degrade men Mm -hmm. on camera. Like there's penis humiliation videos. Um, you know, there's the, there, I mean, there's just dominatrix, you know, and male submissive videos, mm-hmm. obviously not as much as there is the opposite just because, let's be honest, men watch more porn than women do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just think it's just kind of like one of those those ideas that we have in society, you know, that, that a woman can't own her sexuality, that she can't be an exhibitionist, that she can't enjoy what she's doing. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there's definitely porn out there which... I find personally distasteful, you know, and there's and there's stuff out there that, you know, I see where women are being, um, you know, degraded and not in a hot way. Because personally for me, like, so in, in bed, I actually totally like being degraded and dominated. I'm super submissive and I'm, I'm weird like that, you know, and that turns me on. And I think for me, it's because in my day-to-day life, I'm in charge and I'm the boss and I, you know what I mean? So, and, and, and sex, and sex is a release for, for all of us. And so for me, I really like to flip it and I like to not be in charge and I like Mm. to have somebody else take control. Um, and that's enjoyable for me, but that doesn't mean that I'm a weak person, you know? And, and if you, there's certain things that you can say to me in the bedroom, which I'm totally into, but if you talk to me that way outside of the bedroom, outside of the bedroom, I will punch you in the face. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a time and a place for it. So, um, so, you know, so there is stuff out there that, that I, that I don't like, but I mean, you know, the first amendment is there to protect the things that we don't like, not necessarily mm. to the protect the things that we like. And, 
you know, if it's between consenting and willing adults, I don't really have a place to say what people can and can't shoot. Hmm. I can dislike something. I just don't watch it. Do you? Well, I wish there was a website called Actually Having a Blast, where (laughs) it was porn of people that are just having so much fun, gets a little dirty, but they're like actually super into each other. And uh, yeah, that would be a porn site I would enjoy very much. If you could put that together. Um, um, Well, here's the thing. So I think it depends on the performer, you know? I mean, there's definitely performers out there who fucking love what they do. And you can tell. Yeah. Um, Adriana Chekchek. Cheknik. I always call her Chekchek. But she's, like, super dirty, super into it. Just lo- And you can tell, like, she owns her scenes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, she, and she loves it. So you can really see it in some girls um, that they're definitely there. And they love what they do, and they're and they're absolutely. And I can say, you know, from from being on set and shooting these girls and seeing what they're like in the downtime, that that is the truth. And then, you know, of course, that there are girls that are just there for the money, mm-hmm. or you know, maybe they're new and they haven't, you know, come into their own sexuality yet. I mean, porn is definitely not for everybody, but I think that it's it's really suitable for some people. Yeah. And what's nice now is that, um, you know, with the advent of the internet. As much as it's destroyed the adult industry in some ways, it has put a lot more power into the hands of women and the hands of performers because now these girls can control their own careers, control their own image, and really um, be more picky and choosy about who they work for and how they do it. And there are even girls out there who work only for themselves, you know, who only shoot for their own website. They they do camming for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um and they've never worked for an outside company. They've never had a director or producer tell them what to do. So there's been like, I think that the internet has really brought a sense of empowerment in porn to a lot of women. And that's a huge shift that I've seen over the last couple of decades. Yeah, The internet's done that with music too. I just found out that Chance the Rapper has never signed a record deal and just launched all his stuff on Spotify and iTunes and stuff like that. And he's a multimillionaire from that. Now he's like the BET humanitarian of the year. And he was a poet in Chicago. He used to do this louder than a bomb thing where they teach you how to be a little more comfortable on stage and do workshops and stuff. And uh, 24 years old and doesn't need a whole, the old machine behind him. And it's, that's pretty cool that like, uh, performers can, uh, in porn can do that too. And they're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to go with the whole thing. When you say the internet's kind of destroyed it also, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I think everybody knows now that like people don't really pay for porn anymore because oh, yeah. you can get everything for free. And before the internet came along, you had to pay for porn. So, you know, there was a lot more money in the industry. And now, um, yeah, no, no, not so much. How does anyone make... Any money now if it's all goes up on like Pornhub and RedTube and stuff? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't even remember any ads coming up if I've watched anything. Like uh, maybe it does and I miss them. Maybe you have ad blocker on your browser. I don't know. That's possible. But if ads popped up like it was NASCAR, like if they had little (laughs) Pepsi tattoos and stuff on their dongs and stuff, (laughs) I'd be like, well, is this part of porn? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think it's that obvious where the ad pops up in the video like on YouTube, but they'll have ads on the page, like gifts. And it's I think it's generally stuff like for Viagra or some shit like that. Mm. And um, a lot of times, too, because now, you know, where you can't be, it's the whole situation where, well, you can't beat them, join them. So now... 
a lot of people are putting their own videos up on uh, Pornhub and trying to use that to entice people to join their website, you know, because then maybe only part of the scenes up on Pornhub, you know, and you, you can get the rest if you join the website. Um, or, you know, oh, I like this content so much. I'm going to go to that website because this is the thing. Like it depends on how much porn you consume, right? So if you have a very particular kind of porn that you want and you find this video on um, Pornhub that has a very specific genre or a look or whatever and you're like, I'm really into that and you watch a lot of porn and you really want to see that, you might be more inclined to join that website because you know that for 25 bucks a month or whatever, you're going to get exactly what you want all the time in high quality. And or but if you're just like a general consumer of porn, like whatever works for you, you got to sift through a lot of shit on those tube sites to find what you want. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of crap and it's kind of time consuming. Mm. And also too, uh, Pornhub is and this is new. Um, and I don't know exactly how this works because I haven't explored it yet, but I'm going to. Um, where they actually you can upload your own videos and you are Pornhub actually pays you. Oh, weird. Yeah. So um, it's it's got to be something about like how many hits or how many downloads you get. I'm not really sure. It's it's literally very, very new. Um, but a couple of girls have been talking about it. And so I've been planning on looking into that more. Hmm. Has anyone looked at that model of that performer who has put out a call and says, hey, whoever wants to bang me, send me a tweet and then I'll fly you out and we'll send a picture and we'll fly you out and then we'll do something on camera. Oh, like the it, fuck a fan kind of thing? I guess so. Has anyone looked at that model and be like, hey, this is very lucrative or are people like, yeah, it's not going to work? Well, here's the thing. First of all, I mean, we're very protective of, um, you know, our STD testing mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So um, you would have to you would have to get tested. Um, and then secondly, and this is the great misconception of so many men, and this was something that I discovered more so than anywhere else when I did my show Adult Film School for Playboy TV, mm-hmm. which I shot part of it in Austin. And we shot amateur couples having, you know, sex on camera for the first time. It is not easy to perform on camera. As oh, I'm sure. I mean, first of all, to get a heart on and be able to do that on cue in front of a bunch of people watching you with the pressure of the camera and the lighting. And and you know what I found got people a lot of the time was the silence. Because you oh. can't have music playing or anything like that. Like you use, you know, when you're getting it on at home, oh, yeah. you probably put on something sexy. Maybe put a little Derek Brown poetry yeah, on the background. Yeah, get a slideshow going, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe some screensavers of some uh, natural <laughs> national parks. Yeah, whatever you're into, you can't do that on a porn set. It's got to be dead quiet, and the guy is holding the boom like right over you. You know, so you got this mic floating in the air right above you. And, um, and you know, that's a lot of pressure. And then you got to be able to perform. And not only do you be able, you have to be able to perform, you have to be able to perform in a way that people can see what's going on. Oh, yeah, where you're leaning you gotta back. You got to open up. If you watch the way that, like, porn performers actually <clears throat> fuck, like, they don't, like, fuck, like, normally, you know, where you just, you're on top Smother of your girl. Someone. Exactly. <laughs> you got to, like, turn sideways and kind of, like... Push your dick in sideways, and it's 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 awkward, and it takes like, and you got to bring your arm back. You know that's why a lot of guys fuck with like their arm behind their back in porn. Oh, because, side saddle. Yeah, because otherwise your <laughs> arms block. You can't like hold her head. Your arms blocking it, <laughs> and um, you know, and that's another reason too that like guys have to have big dicks in porn. It's not necessarily because you know it's 
we're trying to sell big dicks, which I guess is part of it, but you've got to have a long enough penis that there's penetration, but there's still enough space between the bodies that you can see what's happening and you can get light in there and you can get the camera angles. Mm -hmm. So like a guy with a smaller penis is, is harder to shoot because the bodies naturally need to be closer in order to have that penetration and, you know, get the shot at the same time and it's more difficult. The longer a guy's dick is, the more space between the bodies and the easier it is to shoot. Mm. That's a big part of it. Like giraffes, they can get more leaves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a perfect analogy. Yep. So <laughs> next time you tell someone, like, I can't have you in my movie, um, you should go check out the giraffes at the LA Zoo and see that they're never hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, <laughs> Derek, thank you so much for coming in. It was a pleasure. You're amazing. And um, can you please tell everybody where they can find you online? Sure. Uh, brownpoetry.com. And then I got this new book called How the Body Works the Dark, a bunch of love poems, some erotic stuff. And um, I'm doing a show July 20th at Artshare in downtown L.A. You can find all info at brownpoetry.com. Awesome. And then what is this? Tell us about this greatest slits because I just, the title itself <laughs> needs to be talked about. You, you can uh, download it on iTunes. It's a collection of um, tracks that uh, some musicians and I made where I uh, they make soundtracks underneath it. One of the guys named Richard Swift from a band called The Black Keys, and he played uh, keyboards and such under the a lot of the tracks. And so this is you reading poetry with music underneath. Yes. And on so the back of So if anybody this, wants a sexy background music for their sexual escapades like we were just talking about this is what you want to put on or if you're a stripper and want to freak out everyone in frankfurt <laughs> strip to this and watch what happens <laughs> dude that's a kind of amazing i love that idea <laughs> if it happens please please let holly know and uh yes send me footage <laughs> i do know a lot of feature dancers i'm gonna i'm gonna suggest it i think it would be uh, very avant-garde oh my god it'd be so cool I'm going to make it happen for you. Great. <laughs> I'll, I'll post it up and see what happens. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Derek. Thank you. I got to say, I love that interview. He's so incredibly talented. You know, so many people see poetry as being this more archaic form of entertainment, you know, and from someone like me who was a literature major in college, you know, who was reading... E.E. E. Cummings and Coleridge and Wordsworth and Byron. I think Derek really shows that the art of poetry is very much alive and it can be embodied in the modern world. He's got that manly kind of punk rock edge to him. And the fact that he's toured the world and has opened for such big bands like Cold War Kids and the Afghan Wigs just shows that there really is, you know, a hunger for poetry out there and that the medium is still very much alive and still very cool. So if you guys get an opportunity to see him perform live in person, I would highly recommend it. Go to his website, brownpoetry.com. He's got a schedule of all his upcoming shows. He travels around the United States and sometimes around the world. So you really don't have an excuse to not go and see him. He is fantastic. And I can promise you that in person, he is absolutely captivating. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and share iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and all those fun places where you get your podcasts. I am there too, and I need your support. Thank you so much. See you next time. Mm-hmm.